Good morning, everybody. Uh, I send greetings from the wonderful Republic of Ilardes Park. Um, my wife there at the back uh, with our three beautiful children, Vainant, Karlu, and Ilesna, six, four, and two. Yes, uh, we are busy, but we are blessed. And um, it is so good to be with you this morning. Uh, and, and on just behalf of all our elders, uh, many of you know people like um, Jock and Sandri, Francho and Christy, that you guys sowed generously into our church plant. We are now elders, many other people as well. It's been amazing to see what God has been doing. It's a story of grace where God has made a way. Yep, planting a church in lockdown, that's fun. Um, but God always knows best, and He did it, and He's busy growing our church. We have about 70 connect groups going, uh, close to 200 adults. The church is growing with our, with our kids, of course, as always, every nation, every kid, um, and God is doing amazing things, and He gets all the glory, um, for He's a faithful, faithful God. Um, so friends, this morning we're going to jump into the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, and I know you've been walking through the book of Thessalonians as I understand it, and the theme is in light of, and we have so much ground to cover. So I'm going to jump in very quickly to get into the nitty-gritty, into the beef of what all of this is about. And, and basically, you'll see that it's, it's in three parts. Um, we're going to spend a lot of time on the first part, in light of His coming, because that's what this whole book is about, the light of the second coming of Christ, the church in Thessalonica. Basically, Paul and Silas was there only three weeks. How cool is that? Planted a church in three weeks, then they're gone. They had to run for their lives. And um, if you read the whole book, he sends Timothy to go and check out, is it okay with the church? And then he gets a report back, the faith of the church, the love of this Beautiful, amazing church, and he's then writing to them in the first book of Thessalonians, a lot of them undergoing a lot of persecution from their own people, from the Jews, from the Greeks, from the Romans, hard-pressed on every side. And then he says, basically, in the light of his coming, do not lose heart. In the light of his coming, do these three things. Live to please God. That's the first part of what we're going to look at. Secondly, work hard and love people. Love and work hard, and the light of His coming. Thirdly, we live with hope. Um, and um, the third part, I'm not going to go into that much because a lot of that is spilling over into chapter 5 about the second coming of Christ. What's going to happen at the end times? Yeah. Everybody's like, okay, as the petrol price goes up, probably Jesus is coming closer to us, eh? Okay? Um, so <laughs> let's, um, let's leave that mostly for next week. But I want you to imagine with me for a moment, everybody just close your eyes, young and old, just close your eyes. And as you close your eyes, <clears throat> I want you to, just to play along. All of us have challenges, struggles, vices, maybe a sin that you've been struggling with your whole life. It might be that anger outburst that you have every now and then. It might be the insecurities you're facing. I want you to see that thing in front of you. It might be the fear that keeps on gripping you, or depression, or anxieties. It might be habitual sins, addictions. All of us have something. I want you to see that for a moment. And then I want you to imagine tomorrow morning when you wake up that it's gone. 
forever. It's not there anymore. I just drink in that feeling. <laughs> you can open your eyes. We call that the utter relief of holiness. Did you experience relief? Like imagine those things that you and I are struggling with. It's just, it's just gone. You don't have to face it anymore. <clears throat> For many years in my life, I had a real struggle with pornography. I wanted to end it. I wanted to, to be gone in my life, but I just didn't know how. And then by the grace of God, there came a point where I could one day wake up, and I'm still waking up with that, where it's gone. That's the utter relief of holiness. Now, I don't know what your definition of holiness is. Maybe it's a restrictive word. Maybe it's something that says, oh, all the pleasure and the joy is taken out of this world. If you're a teenager or you're a young person, and you're sitting with me, you're like, all these rules in Christianity just feel so, yeah. Ask somebody that was addicted to drugs for 30, 40 years, or some sin, and you ask them, did you want to get out of that at some point? They will all go, yes, I tried, I tried. I, I didn't want to be an alcoholic anymore. I tried, I tried. And then when something happened in their life and suddenly they're free from that, if they could choose between the two, they would say, please do not even start with that. It will kill you, it will destroy you. That's the utter relief of holiness. And through this chapter in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul is calling us and saying that holiness is one of the most attractive things, the most beautiful things you want for your life. Amen? Now, unfortunately, as a church, we've messed this up. Not us as a church, but the church world, maybe us as well, have been messing up the whole idea of holiness for eons almost, like for the last 2,000 years, because many people think it's the way you dress or the way you start to suddenly speak when you're in church and you have to have this holy tone in your voice. No, it's not that. It's so much more. It is permeating and flowing and flooding as opposed to every part of our lives. It must be so attractive that people from the outside don't say things like, oh, he now thinks he's holier than thou. No, they want that. It's supposed to be that. And this is what Paul is speaking about. And this is what I believe God wants for all of us this morning. So we're going to jump in. And this is an expository series. So verse by verse, I'm going to run through this. We're starting at verse number one. Do you love it when a preacher says, finally? How cool is that? Paul says, finally, but he's still got two chapters to go. He says, finally, then, brothers, and of course, sisters, it was a collective noun, we ask and we urge you. Other translations will say, beseech you. This is strong language. We appeal to you. It's like someone wrestling for the souls of those in front of him. He says, we, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. So they were there for three weeks. They received from them, probably nights in and nights out, sitting next to candlelight, just pouring into these young Christians how you should walk. And walk in a way, in a manner that is what? Pleasing to God. 
You know, there's a way that we can walk that's pleasing to God. Hebrews 6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So let's just settle that. All of this is by faith. It's not by works you're going to read now. Remember that. But there's a way that we can walk that is pleasing to God. And he says now, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. What an encouraging word. It's like, guys, you're getting it right, but please don't stop. Keep on swimming, keep on swimming, just keep swimming, just keep doing this more and more. Keep on. I want to encourage you this morning as a church. I know many of you, but a lot of you I haven't seen yet. But as you are following Christ and walking in this way that's pleasing to Him, come on, let's keep on doing that more and more and more. Verse 2, for you know what instructions, in other words, there is commands. It's not just Oh, this is a good idea. No. What command we gave you through the Lord Jesus or by the authority of the Lord Jesus? And now he's going to proclaim to him, what are this instruction? What is this way that is pleasing to, to walk in for the Lord? And this is in verse 3. This is the will of God for you. Your, everybody with me out loud, your sanctification. And we go, woo! You came this morning, hopefully, to find out what's the will of God for your life. You know, we have many of those questions. What's the will of God in this area, and this relationship, and this business deal, and this? This is the will of God for you. Your sanctification. <laughs> it's very plain. It's very simple. You don't have to go and pray and fast about it. We can end the prayer right here. Now, there's a lot of places also. Also in chapter 5, it's so beautiful the will of God is three things. In chapter 5, verse 18, it says, Rejoice always, pray continually, and in every circumstance, give thanks to God, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Give thanks in every circumstance, Ratif? <laughs> That's a pretty tough one, but I'm going to leave that to Wesley for next week. It's beautiful when God just reveals His will, and this is one of those places. But He qualifies it by saying the following, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, I know there's a lot of kids in the room today, so mom and dad, good luck after the service to try and translate what I said, because this is a sex chapter, okay? Um, a lot of this is about this, but it's scripture. We need to teach this to our children, and I'll tell you why in a moment's time. So the overriding theme that Paul is talking about in these chapters is sanctification. You'll see behind me, there's this picture of this beautiful goldsmith sanctifying Purifying is the other word used. This metal, whether it be gold or silver, purifying it and heating it up. And I don't know about you, I don't like to be sanctified. One of the best ways that God sanctifies us is actually through marriage. He puts you in a marriage, then He sanctifies you. Like someone said, marriage is not for your happiness, it's for your holiness. Then you get children. And it's sanctification 2.20, 600,000, okay? Because they sanctify you. Little sanctifying objects running around in your house. I've got three of them. It's the will of God to sanctify us. Now, I'm going to rabbit trail for a moment before we go back to the text, because I need you to understand something, that sanctification is a very big word. In, in Afrikaans, I don't know the other languages what this means, but Afrikaans it means heiligmaken, sanctification, to become holy. But it's one of three theological words describing salvation in Scripture. And why many people don't understand this, or you'll get people, maybe this has been you, you're like, you gave your life to Jesus in a worship service or at a camp, 
and then it's going well, and about two or three months later, you start to backslide, start to sin again, and then there's another worship service or another camp, and the pastor or person makes an altar call, and you put up your hand again, Jesus, I want to receive you as my Lord and Savior. Maybe that's been you. I'm not dishing you. I want to help you today. You don't have to do that over and over and over again because of the following. You can put up, sanctification is part of three Asians in the Bible. Sanctification, justification, and glorification. You'll see I put up some numbers there because sanctification only comes second. There's one before that, justification. And then glorification, that chapter four at the end is actually speaking about. And let's say that these are three phases or stages of salvation in the, in the Christian's life. And for many years, I didn't understand this. And this freed me so, and maybe hopefully it can do this for you today as well, to understand the following chart. Um, it's basically tenses, if you want to say it like that, that the first one is justification. Now, when does that happen? And hopefully for all of you or for most of you, this has happened. That is the moment when you are born again. How long does it take to be justified? In a moment. The moment you say, Jesus, become my Lord and Savior, when you receive him, you are justified in a moment. That's why we say it's in the past tense. For me, it happened 28 September 1994. When I surrendered my life to Jesus, I wasn't born a Christian. I was born again a Christian. There was a moment where his righteousness became mine, and I was saved from sin's penalty. That's what it does there. When we are justified, it's, it's in a moment where Jesus changes places with us. When we take his salvation, he takes our sin and we get his righteousness. Can you just say amen to that? Because that is the good news. It's got nothing to do with what you do. All we do is we've, by faith we repent, receive him as Lord and Savior. That's justification. That's in the past tense. Go and read Ephesians 2 verse 8 to 9. And then there's the one we're going to speak about today. And that's sanctification, being made holy. Now, that's been happening for 28 years in my life. Ask my wife. <laughs> I'm being sanctified daily, becoming more like Christ and less like Ratif. And there I'm safe from the power of sin. The power, because I'm still living in a sinful world. Temptations coming the whole time, either external or inside of me. I'm tempted. But you know what? I'm not under the power of sin anymore. <laughs> it doesn't have to rule over me anymore. And when we are sanctified, we learn to say no to sin. You start to get the swag in you like, hey, hey, little sin, you used to get me, but you're not getting me anymore because I'm justified, I'm being sanctified, and Christ in me is starting to say no to that sin. And His grace, Titus 2.11, empowers me to say no to sin. Amen? Amen. And that is in the present. Hey, you are now busy sancti being sanctified. Now the problem is, if you try and do sanctification without first being justified, because you're going to go into works. You're going to try and save yourself or better yourself. And that is just religion. It is dead. It will kill you. Because you need, through justification, the Holy Spirit, the holy, sanctified Spirit, to keep on changing you from the inside out. And then the third one, and this is great, is glorification. Maybe you hate your body, <laughs> or hate that your body is going backwards, and it's dying. Wednesday, I sat next to the bed of my 95-year-old uncle, um, 
battling cancer, holding his hand, praying for him, and he passed away yesterday morning. He was a pastor or Dermony his whole life, and I saw that. I looked into the eyes of death, but I know where he is. I know this broken 95-year-old body, <laughs> at the second coming of Christ, it will be resurrected, glorified the future into a new resurrected body as Jesus had. And that is the future. And there we are saved from the presence of sin. How cool is that? And, and can you get this picture that ultimately one day, the utter relief of holiness, being in the presence of a holy God, there will be no sin anymore. Wow. Can you imagine that? So you have to understand that salvation is over three phases in your life. And if you are born again Christian, you are now in phase number two, sanctification. So do not lose heart. We need to encourage one another. Because sanctification sometimes really hurts. Because you need to die to yourself. That's when we baptize people in water. We remind them that they've died, that they've been sanctified, and now they have to live this declaration, that they've died to themselves and keep on dying daily. Now, the beautiful thing is, in all of this, what saves us is Christ. So what is the will of God for you, dear people? Verse three, it's his will that you be sanctified, to become holy and more and more like him. Now, what does it mean to be holy? Because we, we need to have a biblical view of holy. I want to put up what we call the Westminster Sinister Catechism, and it's the question that was asked, um, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to please himself and to be happy. That's what the church fathers said. No, it's not. That's the Westminster Sinister Catechism, okay? Now, here's the right one. <laughs> this is the shorter catechism. What is the chief end of man? to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is the root of true holiness. But the first one is actually what the world says. The world says, no, we're here to please ourselves and be happy. Life is short, enjoy it. You know that? No, 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 eternity is long. Live in light of that. Prepare for it. You see, at the heart of holiness is what Paul is saying here, live in a way that you please God, where it's about Him, where He gets the glory. And the beautiful thing then is, if He's glorified, we are satisfied in Him. It's the best thing for us to live for His glory, to live to please Him. And that is the heartbeat of holiness, is to live in such a way that it glorifies, it pleases Jesus constantly. The chief end of man is to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. You see, holiness is about living in a way that pleases Him, that glorifies Him. And you know, when we live like that, you will look different. One of the meanings of the word holy is literally that you look different. You look, look totally different. <laughs> different in your marriage, different in your business, the way you bring up your children, the way that you act. It's going to look different the way you respond to people who gets on your nerve, the taxi that runs in front of you. It is different. People need to go, hey, that guy's different. Okay, that guy's holy. <laughs> they, they're looking totally different than the rest of the world. You see, verse 3 and verse 7 says, of course, as we said, it's the will of God, your sanctification. But it's also verse 7 that God called us, not for impurity, 
but in holiness. The Greek word for holiness is hagiosmos. It literally means the process of sanctification or purification. It's a process, as I've said now. Now, it's then very interesting. Paul now transitions this call that you are supposed to be sanctified as the will of God. He says, the focus, the emphasis, in the biggest way that you can see it is in the way that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's verse 3 then where he says, abstain from sexual immorality. Now, if there's sexual immorality, as we see in verse 3 there, there probably is something like sexual morality. Now, what would that be? That would be in the confines of a marriage between one man and one woman. That would be sexual morality. Or if you never marry, it will be sexually, be sexually moral, like Paul was, like Christ was, where you then abstain, and you never do this until the coming of Christ. You li literally live in purity. That is what sexual morality is. And when he says abstain from that, um, he says abstain from what? Sexual immorality. Now, that's a big word, but it comes from basically the Greek word porneia. And porneia, you can hear, that's where pornography comes from, was basically a collective noun to describe fornication, um, sex outside of marriage, um, anything that was contrary to what the Bible taught about sexuality. And you must remember that sex is something that God created. <laughs> it's made beautiful. It's actually an act of holiness in marriage, in the confines of marriage. It goes on to the, uh, verse 4. It says that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. It's amazing. Those who know God know how to control their bodies. That's basically what he's saying there, if you flip it around. Because those who do not know God, they just go for it. Woo! I have this body. When I die, this body dies. That's the end of it. But we'll see later in this chapter, no, it's not the end of it. Because your body will be resurrected, and your soul and your spirit will live on forever. So there's consequences. There's eternity in light of eternity. Now, I want you to understand when we speak about sexual immorality, and sexual morality, another way of looking at it is order. Because for many people, when we think about holiness, it's not just taking out all the fun in life. No, it's not. It's order. Have any of you here come across this terrible thing in your life where you drive a bucky or a car that takes petrol and somebody actually throw diesel into your car? Anybody? Hands up. Okay, here we go. Oh, sorry, Paul. Okay. Uh, or the other way around. What happens? Everything just seizes. Now, these days, no matter what you throw in, everything still seizes, okay? All right? It's most probably your bank account. Um, but it's not the right order. It's, it's, it wasn't made for that. Can you understand? It's not God taking the fun out of it. It's the way that it's supposed to work right, optimally. And that's how God created sexual intimacy within the confines of a biblical covenantal marriage. That's where it's beautified. That's where it's holy. And the moment we step out of that, it's like Hebrews 13, 4, that says, let marriage be held in honor among you and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. He's basically saying that 
if we step out of the wisdom and the counsel and the order of God, we will defile what God has placed and ordained as being holy. It taints, it literally um, makes it ugly what God originally meant to be beautiful, to be holy. Now, if you look into the New Testament, maybe you've seen how much they actually write about Pornea. You know why? Because the cities and the towns in the New Testament were just ridden with this. Now, Paul is writing this letter from Corinth to Thessalonica. Now, Corinth was the headquarters of this girl you're going to see in front of you, okay? And this temple, they, she was called Aphrodite. Anybody? There were songs about Aphrodite. She was the goddess of beauty and sexual awakening or whatever. And it was so perverse that in the, in the, in the city of Corinth, there were three temples for her. For, with almost a thousand temple prostitutes, male and female. And part of their worship, they would come to a worship service like this, and what did they have to do? They have to go into some little room, or may, most probably not a room, just everybody, let's do this like a big orgy, and have worship through sexual intimacy. That's how perverse it was. It was sick, friends. It was all driven also by this Roman culture and the Greek culture and the goddesses and, and all of this. And now Paul is writing from this city to a city in Thessalonica where she was also worshipped. And that's when he says, abstain from that. Now you're like, Retief, what does that have to do with us today? Well, Corinth and Thessalonica isn't necessarily around us. But have you checked your phone lately? What about Netflix? What about the video games your children are playing? It is everywhere. And what it does, it kills, it destroys. And the same that Paul, or God through Paul, spoke to the Thessalonians, I want to speak and shout out to you today, abstain from sexual immorality. Whether it be private or public, what I mean by that, private is nobody knows well, God knows, and you know. It might be on your phone. It might be, and even teenagers being here and youngsters, it might be that thing that you think is very innocent. It's going to destroy you. Ask me. I was trapped in that for 20 years. Abstain. Flee from it. Avoid it at all costs. That's what that word literally means. Be separated from it. The word abstain means keep yourself away from sexual immorality. It might be that soft porn that, oh man, it's just, it's just 50 shades of gray. What is this? I'm an adult. I can watch. No, you can't. Not so with you. Not so with you. We are the church. We are holy. We're called to be separate. We're called to be different. Am I tempted like you? Yes, I am. You can watch my, my phone. It's, it's on my phone. It's not as if pastors are exempt. Oh, we get a special pastor phone. No, you don't. It's there. It's in front of us. It's in front of you. It's, it's, it's around us. It might be public for you. or It's not yet public, but it's the affair. Ladies, it might be that connection, that, that emotional connection. Just... Checking Facebook, I wonder how my ex is doing. I wonder what that person, I saw that one at the gym or this, I just want to, <laughs> or Instagram or whatever that might be. Friends, it's the subtle things that open up the door. Not so with you. Avoid, abstain, flee from, separate yourself from sexual immorality. 
verse 4, that we've gone over, but I just want to say this again, that each of you control his body. That, that, word, that word control his body literally means in other translations to possess this vessel, to win mastery. You can have self-control. You can have. I've sat with guys that I've discipled where they were in and out of beds like literally weekly. But then you get the Holy Spirit because it says there, uh, it's a bit later in verse 8, he gives you the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit, listen to that word, holy, the sanctified, the sanctus spiritus, comes and lives inside of you, and the fruit of the Spirit, one of them is what? Self-control. You can't say no. Not by your own will. Because you've been justified, then you can live in sanctification. You can't say no to sin. You don't have to cope with sin, friends. It's the utter relief of holiness. If you're willing to say, I can't, but he can. And that was maybe the question at that time. Paul, you have no idea how tough it is. Retief, you have no idea how tough it is. No, I don't, but God knows. And the same spirit that could save the Thessalonian church, that can help them be sanctified, is the same spirit living inside of you if you were born again. You can say no to sin. You can live in the utter relief of holiness. You don't have to be a slave to sin under the power of sin. How you can desire holiness. You can live in holiness. You can teach it. You can preach it. It goes on. And I want to just read this, um, this quote from a theologian there. It says, Sins have a habit of gradually becoming glamorized and a common part of people's lifestyle. And sexual sins, fornication, adultery, and all forms of sexual acts outside of marriage can become so fashionable to the extent that they are regarded as natural part of people's culture. In those circumstances where sexual sins become part of a people's culture, consciences become dull and no guilt is acknowledged. Can I ask you, <laughs> what have become dull in your life? Where it's like, well, everybody's doing this. I can't tell you how many Netflix series we had to stop after season one or episode three or five because suddenly you see these things just coming up. Just, oh, this undercurrent, this agenda being pushed, whether it be homosexuality, whether it be um, fornication, whatever. It's just everywhere, friends. <laughs> Have you become dull to sin? We don't feel convicted anymore because everybody's doing it. The culture is approving it. Not so with us, not so with the church. Are we going to be persecuted? Are you going to be laughed at? Oh, you're stingy. You're so holier than thou. No, you're not. You're just biblical and you're following Christ. You're going to look different, friends. I'm sorry. You can't be everybody's friend anymore. Sorry. Can't please everybody anymore. Sorry. You're going to look different as they looked different. Because in verse 6 it says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. You see, any sexual sin always has to do with other people. Whether it be private, you're doing this, or public. When it's private, it's going to come out at some point. It did for me. That's why I most probably only married very late, because this thing was, was holding me back for such a long time. It just influences the way you look at people. You interact with other people. It is just so devastating. That word transgress literally means to go beyond, to step over the boundary. You are literally going across the boundary that God put in place for you. When you wrong somebody, you take advantage of them. That's what the word means. You take advantage of not just brothers, but sisters as well. Not so with us, friends. 
And then listen to this warning, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you before and solemnly warned you. This is a warning. I just sense this morning, some of you, you're at the edge. You started that affair. You started to flirt. You started. Not so with you. Be warned. This might be your last chance. Come out. Come out clean. Speak to somebody. Go to your connect group leader. Start speaking with your spouse. Just get it out. Ask for help. Help is there. <laughs> for God has not called us, verse 7, for impurity, but in holiness. And therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, Paul or Ratif, whoever is preaching this, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. And that's the beauty. When we have the Holy Spirit, we can say no to sin and yes to him. Because here's the beautiful thing. The goal of sanctification is not your happiness, but your holiness for the glory of God. <laughs> it's ultimately for us to glorify him and to become more like Christ and less of us. You know what's the beautiful thing? We actually be, become more, not happy, but actually joyful because of what I said in the beginning, that utter relief of holiness. It is possible. It's your birthright in Christ Jesus. One way to discern if something is the will of God is to ask the question, is this setting me apart from the world more and more and drawing me closer to God? Then most probably it is the will of God because you're going to look different, remember? Not going to be that popular, but you're going to look different. And does it bring glory to God? Now, just a quick note. Friends, God doesn't accept you because of your holiness. That happened at justification. Because of what Jesus did, he accepts you just as you are, but then he's going to change you. Don't fall into works and think, oh, the more holy I get, the more brownie points I get from God. Like, donkey, pick me, pick me, look at me, I'm so holy. No, no, no. We live from acceptance. We live from justification. Therefore, I want to become more like him and let go of all of this. And then I'm going to run into part two, and I'm not going to get to part three. I'm going to leave that for Wesley next week. But 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9 to 12 then this justification, or the sanctification goes further than just sexual purity. It goes into how we love and we work people. Verse 9 says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. It's so beautiful that they were taught to love. It's part of their sanctification to love one another, and God actually taught them. It says, verse 10, For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. We urge you to do this more and more. Remember in the beginning he said more and more. Now he's saying again. Now that you know how to love people, just keep on doing it. Keep, keep on becoming more and more lovers of people. Don't stop it. And then, I love this. And then to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. What this tells me is, and this was the model, if you go and read chapter 1 and 2, as Paul went to them, they were never a burden to the believers there. They worked tirelessly. They worked hard. What is this saying to us as a church today? You have to work. Work hard. Work with your hands. It's not a shame to work with your hands. Work hard. Don't be a burden. I have many Christians who... When they suddenly become a Christian, they just want to do the work of the Lord 
and then they suddenly become a charity case for those around them because they're actually too lazy to work. Work, work hard. Don't be a burden to those around you. That's part of your sanctification, to put up your hand and saying, I'm gonna do my best. When you're studying, study hard. If you're in school, do it well. Work. In light of his coming, we work and we love. In light of we know that he's coming, we work and we love. So that you may walk properly before outsiders, that scripture ends. For those who are not in the faith, that they can see that, wow, these people are actually people of their word. When they do business, they do it well. They mind their own affairs. They live this quiet life. Doesn't mean you're a, someone there in the corner, you're doing nothing. No, let's change the world. But it means that we have this testimony on the outside that we know how to work hard. And part of our sanctification is maybe to be under, under a boss or somebody that you don't really like. But you work hard, you work diligently. And God actually uses that to sanctify things in your life that's not right. That's part of sanctification. And then this whole beautiful chapter before we're going to finally, <laughs> the words of Paul, finally, uh, before I'm going to pray for you, it goes into this glorification part from verse 13 to 18 that we live in light of his coming with hope. And he speaks, and I'm not going to read this now, but um, how, how he gives this picture to this Thessalonian church who are grieving. They're grieving for their lost ones who maybe were persecuted because of their faith. And they're like, okay, what's gonna happen? Are they dead and they're gone now? No, he says, no, they're only sleeping. Like my uncle, he's only sleeping now. <laughs> but he will be woken up to a resurrected body, glorification, when Christ comes again. Now the church has been split over many years exactly what's gonna happen. Is it the rapture, it's not the rapture? Is it before the seven years tribulation? Is it the thousand years millennium, all of that? And we can get into a lot of that, but that's one of the, let's say, non-essentials in the Christian faith. It cannot save you. It's important to know about it, and I know, even in this church, you probably have different views of what's exactly gonna happen. But the bottom line, if you go into these last scriptures, that is so beautiful, is Paul is saying, when we are grieving, we're not grieving as people who have no hope. Two and a half weeks ago, many of you sat here with us when we said goodbye to Antoinette de Brain, one of our dearly beloved elders' wives in our Linwood congregation. It was painful. This plaque was packed, probably 500 people here. But you know, we said goodbye, but we only said temporarily goodbye because that's what Scripture teaches us. It says we're not grieving as those who do not have any hope. That's what verse 13 says. Don't be uninformed because we have hope. What is the hope? This is not the end. <laughs> this is not the end. And why do I want to be sanctified and live a holy life and live for his glory? Because this is not the end. Because I know something is coming, it affects the way I'm living right now. Can we raise our children with eternity right in front of them? Because we get caught up with media marketing and all the needs we have and all the challenges that this life is everything. It's not, friends. It is not the end. This is not the whole deal. Please hear me again. Hear God hopefully beseeching you. Do not just live for this life. Live for what counts in eternity. 
Give your lives to that, because that is what he said. And he ends this beautiful passage where he said, after he's now explained what is going to happen, it ends with these words, therefore encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. And I want to encourage you today. Live in light of eternity. Live to please God by submitting to sanctification, to start loving holiness, to flee and abstain from any form of sexual immorality. If you don't know where to start, come to our victory training. Get into a connect group. Start to be accountable. Start to walk with people. If you're addicted to porn, addicted to Facebook and looking at those things that feeds this thing for you emotionally, get it out. Ask people. Start walking with people. If you're not working, I'm not saying you're not trying to get work, but if you're just lazy, in light of eternity, in light of what outsiders are thinking, let's work, let's love, let's keep on doing that, and let's live with hope, because this is not the end. (laughs) I want to pray this prayer over you at the end of 1 Thessalonians. Verse 23, now may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. Oh Lord, please start with me. And I pray this over this beautiful church, through and through, dear and dear, in every area of our lives, would you come and sanctify us? And I know it's not nice because you're gonna turn up the heat, but you, would you sanctify us through and through? And then may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to this promise. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. <laughs> Lord, you're a faithful God. Come and do it, Lord. And in this moment, just recall those things that I ask you to think about in the beginning. We just bring that before God. And just simply say and pray, Lord, come and sanctify me through and through in these areas. I know it's a dangerous prayer, but I dare you to pray it. It might be in the area of sexual immorality, but it might be in the area of finances or your emotions or fear, or whatever that might be. Just bring it before him right now. Come and sanctify us, Lord. Come and change us. May we love holiness. May we not grieve your Holy Spirit, but submit when the promptings come when we can repent, walk into the light with brothers and sisters and receive your forgiveness. Right now in this moment, would you start this process of sanctification with these things? And don't stop it, Lord, please. Sanctify us through and through by your beautiful Holy Spirit. May we live and love, work hard, May we live with a hope in us that this is not the end. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.